So uh, today we are continuing in this series, Unexpected Jesus, and if you've been here for the last several weeks and you've been tracking with us, uh, we are in chapter two of Mark. Man, we are like, we're making some headway. Sixteen chapters, we're in chapter two. Here we go. We started this series back in November, and we are taking a deep dive into the really the life of Jesus. And what we've seen thus far up to this point is that the drama is building, And what we will see moving forward is that the drama is about to begin to swell. You see, since Jesus showed up, things are changing everywhere Jesus goes. And word is beginning to spread, and it's beginning to spread into these two groups of people. There's one group uh, that is coming to Jesus, they're hearing about Jesus, and they're coming to Jesus because Jesus is healing them. They're meeting, Jesus is meeting their need, and he's helping them. And they can't quite describe it. They can't quite explain it. But, but th- these are the words they use. He, he is teaching as with one who has authority. Th- there is just something that is different about Jesus to this group of people. But there's another group. And the tension and the drama is, is, is brewing. It's growing. And this group is beginning to take notice of Jesus, uh, not because of the miracles, but the effect that the miracles are having. You see, the effect that the miracles are having uh, is that Jesus' popularity is beginning to grow. And as Jesus' popularity begins to grow, it is beginning to upset the religious order. It's upsetting the control of the religious leaders. They're fearing for this. And, and, and it's beginning to upend their system because this Jesus is coming saying, the kingdom of God is near. It sounds just like some religious people 2,000 years later, doesn't it? And, and this encounter that's going to happen in this text is going to be no different than what we've seen to this point between Jesus and these two groups of people. And once again, because there's so much uh, content, there's so much that is important in this text, we're going to take a story that is in many ways very familiar. We've probably heard this story before, this encounter. We've heard it, and we're going to take it in two parts. We're going to look at uh, uh, the first part of it kind of in depth today, and then next week we're going to come back and we're going to kind of take the chunk that's on the back end of this encounter with Jesus And the hope today is that there's two implications that you're going to see presented from this story for your life and for this church. The one will be a personal implication for you as you live your daily life, as you go about your life, and and what this means for you as a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus. And then there's another implication, the implication that is there for our church. What What does this mean for us And so if you've got your scriptures, if you've got your Bible app, if you've got um, uh, maybe a note sheet uh, that you brought with you today, a journal, uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, and I just want to spend the next few minutes just helping us understand this text uh, in context and helping us understand what's going on here so that then we can get to the implications for our life and for our church. So Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we're just going to walk through this, and if you were with us the last couple of weeks, you know that... Jesus encountered a leper, and Jesus asked the leper after he healed him, he told the leper to do one thing. He said, go show yourself to the priest. Don't talk to anybody about what just happened. I want you to go show yourself to the priest. And we know, we talked about it last week, that the zeal, the excitement uh, about Jesus and what Jesus had just done uh, for this man uh, sort of superseded this man's obedience to Jesus in this moment. And he didn't 
Maybe later he did, but not right away. He did not go tell the priest. He told everyone else. And the end of Mark chapter 1 closes with this picture that Jesus' popularity had grown so much that he had to go out into the countryside. He had to go out in, you know, away from the city because everywhere he went, the crowds were just drawn to Jesus. So Mark chapter 2 picks this up. And it says this, verse 1. And again... He entered Capernaum. Now, Capernaum kind of becomes the hub uh, for Jesus here in these early days of his ministry. So he's been in chapter 1, much of that sort of centers around Capernaum. And he has to go out because of the leper and his zeal, and he goes away. And now a few days later, maybe a week later, he, he comes back home. And again, he entered Capernaum and some, after some days. And it was heard that he was in the house. Now, this could have been the actual home of Jesus, or this could have been uh, Simon Peter's home. And, and this sort of just became the hub for, for Jesus' ministry when he came back in. And, and what would happen here in this uh, community, when we think about a home, we need to kind of understand because this is going to matter in just a minute. The homes oftentimes uh, in this region would be built in like a courtyard. And there would be four different homes, maybe the same family or four different families, and they would all kind of face into one another into this courtyard. And so Jesus has come back home, and, and, and he's there, and you've got to picture this courtyard and, and these homes that are right there. And what does it say in verse 2? Immediately, many gathered together. So that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. So here's this courtyard, here's Jesus in this home, and, and, and people, there's so many people that have crammed into this house, they're spilling out into the courtyard. And again, when we read this, we can't think, oh man, you know, this would have been, uh, you know, painted a, a nice sort of bright gray, and all the windows would have been open, and such natural light. You know, Jesus probably got a really good Instagram selfie, you know, because of the natural light coming into this room, you know, and, and, and you know, 12-foot high ceilings, and there's probably a nice open floor plan, and everybody was sitting on there. No, this was a tiny little home. They had to keep things, you know, in, in, in this region, in this area, they had to keep these homes small so that when it was cool at night, their, their body heat and the, and the heat from the fire would warm the place up. And then in the summertime, if it got so hot, they would actually go up on the roof and sleep because the, the home would be so hot. This, these people are crammed in. And just to take the, the picture a little step further, they didn't have degree. They didn't have different flavors of deodorant that they were wearing. And so this is a commitment to come into this home to hear Jesus teach. And that's what we see him doing. It says this, and he preached the word to them. And we can't lose sight of this. That, that despite all the miracles that we've seen happen in chapter 1, and all the miracles we will see moving forward from here with Jesus and who he encounters, we cannot lose the sight, the sight of the fact that, that Jesus came to preach the word. He came to announce, to bring the kingdom of God. That was his message, to bring, to proclaim the good news of Jesus. That was why he came. This wasn't a, a miracle show. It was to preach the good news. And I'll be honest, I still struggle with this in my life. Just, I, I see so much of myself uh, in, in so many of those early, I don't even know if you could call them followers, maybe just those people who were curious about Jesus. 
I see myself in them because of this. There's so many times when I want the miracles of Jesus, but I don't want to let Jesus be master of my life. I want to be near Jesus. I want to be near the things of Jesus. But man, I don't know that I really want to ultimately bow the knee to make him be master and Lord of my life. There's tension there. And all throughout this story of Jesus, we see this. We see people coming to him because of the miracles. And Jesus said, this is why I came. The kingdom of God is near. I came to bring the good news. And we cannot lose sight of that. That the purpose of Jesus, that, that yes, he did miracles and he helped people and he healed people and it was, it was amazing, but those, the purpose that those served was to give credibility to the message that he was bringing. So we see that right here, that Jesus, he's got these people gathered, they're pressing in, it's hot maybe, it's, people are sweating, they're listening to him proclaim the, the message of the kingdom of God. And then verse 3, Mark tells us this, then they came to him. And if you are a Bible highlighter, underlined person, if you, if you take notes in your Bible app, highlight things in your Bible app, here's what I want you to do. As we read this passage through, I want you to highlight or underline or circle, mark, whatever it is, every single time you see the word they. This becomes really important for where we're going today. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was laying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, what's, what's going on here? What's, what's happening here? Here's, here's a man. We don't give the backstory to it. Really, ultimately, doesn't even matter for the context of this message. But we have a man who's sick. He's hurting. He's broken. He's, I have to imagine that this is something that might, maybe he's lived with for years and years and years. If any of you have any chronic pain, you know that that oftentimes turns into psychological pain. Because there's an emotional side of this. There's a psychological side that goes into this when you just live with pain, when you live with a debilitating disease that will not allow you to function as society around you oftentimes functions. And so when we see this paralytic, we have to understand that it's not just a paralytic. This is a broken human being who happens to have a few friends. Maybe these guys come by every day, they check on him, they bring him some food, they, they bring him some water, they make sure he's cared for. Maybe these guys were the ones that were waiting in line in Mark chapter 1. You remember Mark chapter 1? Jesus, he, he, he heals Simon Peter's mom, he, he, uh, mother-in-law, he, he goes out, he begins to heal people, there's a line, he's, he's healing people one right after the other, late into the night, and then early the next morning he wakes up early, and he goes out to pray, and Simon Peter comes and finds him, and he says, hey, where have you been? Everybody's looking for you. Why? Because there's a line of people that have heard about Jesus, and, and they've been waiting through the night to, to have Jesus heal them, and what does Jesus say? He reminds us again in Mark chapter 1, right in the middle of this. He didn't claim popularity. He didn't claim fame. He said, no, we got to go. We, we got to go into the next town. We got to go to the next town because I got to preach because that's why I came. And maybe these guys had, had been standing through the night. We'll just call them, you know, uh, uh, a paralyzed Pete. You know, they've been standing through the night with paralyzed Pete, and somebody comes down the line and says, "Hey, guys, I'm I'm sorry. You know, Jesus Jesus has gone on. He he says he's got 
something else he needs to get to. And, and they go home. But, but a few days later, they hear that Jesus has come back to town. And they know this is the moment. And, and so they rush in and, and they tell Pete. They say, Pete, we're, we're going. And he says, going where? I can't go anywhere. And they say, just chill. We will got you. And they get him on a stretcher. And they're carrying him through the little village there. They're carrying him through the town. And they get to the courtyard where they know Jesus is, is, is going to be. And they get to the courtyard and they stop and they, they check their watch. And, oh, man, we're 30 minutes late. Again, 2,000 years later, church members are still the same. I'm just kidding. We're moving on. So they, they come and they get into this courtyard and, and they stop and they see the people spilling out. And maybe they hear the words of Jesus and they look and they see a staircase. And that was common. Because I said earlier, a lot of times in the summer it would be so hot in these homes that, that, that at, in the evening, because it would be cool at night, they would actually go up onto the rooftop and sleep. And so they think to themselves, this is our only chance to get to Jesus. Well, what if he calls a timeout in the middle of his message and, and he says, okay, I'm out, I'm gone. They, they've heard this story and they're like, we, we got to get Pete to Jesus. And so they, they carry him up, up to the roof and they get to the top of the roof and they know there's only one option. You know, and, and this isn't, hey guys, go get the skill saw, uh, go get the, 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 you know, the tools, we're going to cut a nice neat hole in the, in the, in the roof, and it's going to be some two-by-fours that we'll have to patch up, but, but this will be nice. No, 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 this is a mud thatch roof. And I don't know if they brought tools with them, I, I don't know if they brought a hammer with them, I just imagine that in that little room where Jesus is teaching, there's some commotion that begins to happen on the roof. Some desperate friends are trying to get a desperate man to the only person that they know who can heal their friend. So can you just imagine being Jesus, you know, and all of a sudden there's all this banging that's happening above you. And little bits of dirt and dust and, and maybe this mud clay begins to fall and, and these friends are tearing through the roof and there's, there's these mud thatch branches and they're breaking them apart and they're trying to get a hole big enough so that they can get paralyzed Pete down through and get him to Jesus. And I have to just, again, just go with me for just a minute. I have to imagine that Jesus just steps back and he just looks. Because he's Jesus. He knows what's getting ready to happen. He knows what's getting ready, what he's getting ready to do. And he just steps back and everybody's, oh, a gasp. You're interrupting Jesus. And they lower this guy down. And we read that and they, we think, oh man, they, you know, they, they messed this guy's roof up. But, but see, in, in Jewish culture, if you messed up someone's property, you were liable by law to fix it. So this was incredibly risky for these men to come, to carry their friend, destroy this roof of, I mean, can you imagine this is, you know, maybe, maybe they thought, you know, hey, this is Jesus' home. If it was, you know, he'll just snap his fingers and it'll all go back up and everything will be fine. You know what I mean? But, but, but we're, we're going to mess this guy's roof up to get our friend to Jesus. And people maybe start kind of shuffling back a little bit as he starts coming down through the roof. And Jesus takes a step back and smiles because he knows what's getting ready to happen. And they lower him down and, and paralyze Pete's there on the ground. And he's embarrassed. Maybe he thinks, you know, I've tried everything. How is this going to work? And I love verse 5. I love what verse 5 says. 
When Jesus saw their faith, and most commentators would say, have said that it is not the faith of the paralytic, it is the faith of the people that brought the paralytic to Jesus. When Jesus looked and saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And I have to imagine all of his buddies that brought him, they're all up on the roof, looking down, listening in, waiting to see, hear the words, waiting to see the miracle. And they go, no, he can't walk. That's what we brought him to you for. And what we learn from this encounter with these four desperate friends who brought this incredibly desperate man to Jesus is this. Jesus shows us here, he's demonstrating to us and to everybody in this room that the greatest need that we have in our lives, while it are physical, emotional, psychological, financial, relational uh, needs, they may be great and they may feel like they're pressing in on every side. While we may have legitimate physical needs in our life, Jesus is demonstrating the reality that our greatest need is not a physical need. That the greatest need that we have in our life is a spiritual need. And it is to be forgiven. And Jesus looks at this man and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, why did Jesus say that? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. One possibility is that, that this person had actually committed a sin that landed him paralyzed. That, that, that maybe he had, you know, I mean, the, the, the possibilities are endless. He could have stolen something, and as he's running away from stealing something, he, he gets hit by a, a horse, you know. I mean, the, the, the possibilities are endless. He jumped off of something trying to get away, and, and, he, and, and he paralyzed. I mean, there's just no telling. But the other possibility is this, is that in Jewish culture, in Jewish customs, people believed that chronic illness, just like with leprosy, was a cause of sin. That God would inflict these, these, these ailments on your body because of sin. So maybe this guy, maybe the sin that he had was the sin of bitterness. That, that he'd been paralyzed for so long, he hadn't been able to provide for his family, he hadn't been able to be a normal part of society. He, he felt like people had just been caring for him and serving him his whole life and he couldn't do anything in return. And, and in response to that, he had just gotten bitter towards God. And he didn't even want to be there because he thought to himself, man, if Jesus has anything to do with God, I don't want anything to do with Jesus because that's why I'm here. And his bitterness had just grown in his heart. And Jesus looks at him and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And as much as I've heard this story, I've taught this encounter with Jesus before. I taught it here a couple of years ago. I was reminded of something this week that is incredibly important for all of our lives, and it is this, is that I've got to be careful thinking I always know what the agenda of Jesus is. You can trust it. You can have confidence in it. But I have to be careful thinking I've got Jesus figured out. I've got his agenda figured out. I've got his plan figured out. Isaiah 55, if you want to go there with me really quick, I just want to read a couple of verses. Isaiah 55 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways, nor my ways, nor your ways, my ways, says the Lord. For as 
The heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Jesus had a very different plan than what these friends thought the result and the outcome was going to be. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. I love the Warren Wiersbe quote. This is this. Forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need. It costs the greatest price. It brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. Forgiveness is the greatest need that Jesus ever performs. And here's what's powerful about that. Jesus has performed that miracle for each and every one of us, not just for the leper. It meets the greatest need. The greatest need that you have in your life is forgiveness from Jesus. It costs the greatest price. It costs Jesus his life on the cross. And it brings the greatest blessing. Sometimes it's not always, you know, physical, you know, uh, 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 resolve from physical problems. No, sometimes it's not, you know, the fact that all of our finances and all of our relationships and all of life works out. No, the blessing that we get is the blessing of God. It is the blessing of Jesus. It is being in a right relationship with Him. And it has the most lasting results. This is not a temporary fix. You see, the the physical ailment of this uh, paralytic, even when Jesus, spoiler alert, heals him in just a minute of his physical ailment, his physical body will eventually break down and he will die. That healing of his physical self, his physical body, was only going to be temporary, but the forgiveness of his soul was eternal. And it is the same for you. There may be a legitimate physical need that you have in your life, something that you could tangibly reach out and say, Jesus, if you could only work a miracle in this area. But the greatest need that Jesus could provide for you for has already been done, and that is the forgiveness of your soul. And that he could meet this physical need over here, but it will only be temporary. It will only have temporary results. It will only have temporary effects. But this, the forgiveness of your soul, has an eternal effect. In that when you die, you are secure in the place of Jesus. So how does the rest of this encounter go? Well, like I said, we're going to divide this into two parts, but, but, but I'm the guy that needs to know how the story ends. We can come back and fill in the details later, but just give me how the story ends. And so we're going to read the rest of this encounter here of the paralytic, and then next week we're going to come and take a deep dive on these last few verses up to chapter 12. Back to verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. But some of the scribes were sitting there And reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemy like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within himself, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, sons, your sins are forgiven you. In other words, which is easier to say, something that is internal, that may not be immediately quantifiable, that we can't reach out and touch and see and is visible because it's an internal thing that happens, an internal change? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? 
And then I love this. I love Jesus. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go your way to your house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all. And then this was the result. So that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So I said earlier that there's two implications. There's a personal implication for our life, and then there's for us as a church body, as a family, there's an implication. The implication of this text for our life is this. Are you willing to be the they for someone else? Now, I know that's not correct grammar. I know some of you are out there going, oh, he should have wordsmithed that a little bit. I just had to use the text. It said they over and over and over again, so we're just rolling with it. But are you willing to be the they for someone else? To take all the risk, assume all the blame, and ultimately let Jesus have center stage. Because you see this, they were not the ones who healed, Jesus was. They were not the ones who forgave, Jesus was. They were not the ones who performed the miracle, Jesus was. But... They were the ones who brought the sick man to Jesus. Are you willing to be the they for someone else? You see, in your life, every single day, you encounter people who are broken, hurting, lost, because they're apart from Jesus. And, and, if, and if you have been forgiven by Jesus, if you are following Jesus, the status that you have now is that Jesus the words of Jesus were this, you are the light of the world. That is your position and that is your responsibility. He has placed you in whatever environment you are in to be light to those people, to be the they for your coworkers, for your boss, for your neighbors, for the parents on your kids' ball teams that just get a little too into it and they're kind of obnoxious, for the kids that you go to school with, for the kids that you teach, Are you willing to be the they for someone else? It, it is not your job to fix them. It, it is not your job to make them well. It is not your job to heal them. But we do have a responsibility. Just like we see these friends that brought their sick friend to Jesus. Are you willing to be the they? And you say, you know, man, I don't, I don't have the confidence in this. I, I, you know, like mo I'm reading through uh, the Bible right now, and, and I turned 40 in September. Uh, I'm going to keep saying this uh, so that you guys have a countdown of how long you've got to plan my surprise party. But I, I turned 40 in September, and I'm reading through the Bible, and I'm going to finish the Bible on my 40th birthday. I'm really excited about this. I've read through the Bible before, but I'm kind of excited about this marker. And I'm just finishing up Exodus, and, and, and God calls Moses, and Moses starts putting all these excuses in front of God. And that may be you right now. You may say, I, I, I can't do this, and I can't do that, and I don't have the words, and I don't have the confidence in all of this. And here's what I want to say to you. Are you willing to be the they? You say, okay, I am. How? Well, verse 5 in Mark 1, uh, chapter 2, gives us a little bit of a clue. 
Verse 5 says this, when Jesus saw their faith. So how do we do this? How, how, do we, how do we be the they for people around us? It's two things. One is this, is it is what we believe. It's a matter of faith. And that is what we believe. These guys believed that Jesus could. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gone through all of this. They wouldn't have risked all this. They wouldn't have put their financial status maybe in jeopardy. They wouldn't have done all of these things. They had heard the stories. They knew that, Jesus, that it was possible for Jesus to do this. So it is what we believe. Is, is we believe that Jesus can. We believe that, as we're going to sing in just a minute, that Jesus is a miracle worker. He's a way maker. He's a promise keeper. We believe these things. And you may say, you know, I, I, I've never seen, I've been, you know, a Christian, I've been coming to church, you know, I've been doing the things, but, you know, I've never seen a miracle. I've never seen, you know, somebody who was lame, you know, walk or blind, see, or, you know, I, I've never seen that in my life. And here's what I want to say to you today. Look around. Every single person who is in this room, who is a follower of Jesus, is a walking miracle. You say, how is that possible? Well, in Mark chapter 1, we saw the story of the leper. And I said in Mark chapter 1, we are the leper. We had an ailment that was, that was, that was in our lives that, that we could not do anything about until Jesus stepped in and healed us. And the ailment that each one of us had in our life, if we're a follower of Jesus, was that we were separated from God and that nothing we could do, we could not work hard enough, we could not come to church hard enough, we could not do all of the right things enough in order to get healed in that way until Jesus stepped in and offered himself on the cross freely for you and I. Therefore, making a way for you to be forgiven. And so if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, and you said, Lord, I want you to be Lord of my life. I want to follow you. I, 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 want, I, want, I want your forgiveness. I, I want to be cleansed of, of all the things that I've, I've done and said and, and will continue to say and do. You are a walking miracle. Because Jesus has done something for you that you could not do for yourself. So it's not just what we believe, but then what else we see in this text is this, is that it is what we do as a response to what we believe. It's been said that the greatest distance in the human soul is the distance between the head to the heart. That we believe things about Jesus. We sit and we learn things about this book and how we're supposed to live our life and how we're to order our life around who Jesus is. And yet the distance that it has to go from our head to our heart sometimes can feel insurmountable. So there is a right response that we should have when it comes to our faith. I want to flip just really, really quick to James chapter 2. This is that James, the half-brother of Jesus, and he writes these words. He says this, what does it profit, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? 
Now, now this is not, uh, again, this, this passage of Scripture has been used, and I, th- I think it's heresy because I think it's a false gospel, that somehow or another that faith and works equal, if you do enough and if you have enough faith, that faith and works can work together to equal your salvation. That is not what James is talking about here. As we are going to see in a minute, he's going to give us kind of a scary reality to just having faith in our life that does not transform how we behave. It doesn't transform how we think. It doesn't transform what we desire. Listen to this. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And then this is the scary reality. He says here in verse 19, you believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In other words, what James is saying here is that if what we believe about God, what we believe about certain things has not translated into action, it essentially amounts to demon faith. That even the demons believe that he's Lord. Even the demons believe that he's God. And their response is they shudder to think about it. He says this, but what do you know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead. He says down here, verse 21, but was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Go back and read that story. It's in Genesis. It's powerful. Do you see that faith was working together with his works? What he believed about God, what he had maybe saw and experienced, what what he believed, his faith was working together with his actions. And by works, faith was made perfect. It was put on display. So are you willing to be the they for someone else? I love this quote from N.T. Wright. He says this, once you've met the living, forgiving God in Jesus, you will find yourself on your feet going out into the world and in the power of God's love. Every single day, we meet broken, hurting people, just like paralyzed Pete. And they need somebody to come alongside of them and say, hey man, I got you. I'll grab a corner of your mat, and I'll show you the way to Jesus. So that's the the personal implication of this text. But there's a a church family implication for this text. And it's a similar one. If you're a blank person, if you fill in the blanks there, you probably have already guessed it. It's this, would we... As the church, as Grace Hill Church, would we be willing to be the they for our community? Would we be willing to take all the risk, to assume all the blame, and let Jesus have center stage? You know, we are deeply involved in Cargillville High School. It's becoming more of an involvement almost every single month. We're praying big things in the future for that. 
We were deeply embedded in the life of uh, Germantown Elementary School and ministering to this school who um, uh, it's about 85, 86% minority. Uh, somewhere around 40 to 45% of the students there are economically disadvantaged. And, and we do big things for that school. We do small things for that school, like painting bathroom stall doors that just say you matter to try to give a positive message to those kids. But what's interesting about what's happening around us is, yes, there's some moments where we're kind of going out into certain places, but, but God is doing something unique in this community right in our backyard. A couple of weeks ago, I was involved in a conversation uh, with an official uh, from the city of Collierville, and his comment to me was, he said, hey, have you heard about everything going on in your community? And I said, no. I said, you know, enlighten me. And his joke was, he said, man, I don't know what you guys are praying for, but whatever you're praying for seems to be working. And I said, tell me more. And so I want to show you guys what he told me. This is a picture of about a two-mile radius around uh, our area. So you can find Grace Hill Church. You see Bill Morse Parkway right there, Grace Hill Church. That's us. Um, down to Bahelia and kind of circling back around to Shelby is about two, two-and-a-half-mile you know, radius right there if you, if you drove it. Uh, Corey, go to the next picture for me. All of these um, shapes, these rectangles and squares, represent developments that have just been approved by the town of Carville. If you come in on the east side over here off Collierville Road, uh, you've seen all the grading that they're doing out there. Now they're beginning to lay some of the infrastructure. Uh, that is supposed to be around 250 townhomes that will be built in the next couple of years. Uh, right here where it says Magnolia Home Cypress Grove, that long rectangle that kind of goes down and then the rectangle that kind of is running uh, east to west and then the other rectangle that's running down by Bahelia, all of that is going to be the second phase of that subdivision and the then eventual third phase of that subdivision. And then the square over there on Bahelia represents the senior living uh, uh, center that is almost uh, complete. And, and this is what the official from Carterville told me a couple of weeks ago. He said this. He said that in the next two to three years, they're expecting a thousand new residents to be living within a two-mile radius of our building. Now, you guys had the same reaction that the first service had. It was kind of shocking. I thought that would be the one spot all day that there might be a little bit of excitement because here's the reality. There are churches everywhere that are praying that they could minister to their neighbors, minister to their community, minister to their city. And for some reason, God is bringing them into our backyard. And so I have to begin to think in the next two, three years that, that if there's going to be a thousand new residents living within less than two miles of Grace Hill Church, I just have to ask myself this question now, is would we be willing to be the they for them? You say, how are we going to do that? I don't know. Where are we going to get the money to reach those people? I don't know. What if those people don't look like us? I don't care. What if those people don't believe the same thing we believe? Even better. We are here to bring and to show the kingdom of God to the world around us. 
what Jesus demonstrates over and over and over again, that he is setting things that are broken. He is taking those things and he is making them whole and right again. And we as the church and we as individuals have a mandate to be light in the darkness and God is bringing a thousand new people into our backyard. So are we willing, are you willing to be the they for someone else, to take all the risk, to assume all the blame, and to ultimately let Jesus have center stage? Let's pray together.